Well, this week we come to the end of the book of Micah. We started it back in January and we promised you at the beginning a real roller coaster. And boy, we've had it, haven't we? From the heights of hope to the depths of despair, from the promise of a bright future to the threat of imminent judgment, often within the same chapter. We've had Micah challenge our social consciences, not to make us woke and everything that that might entail, but to make us think about issues like justice, poverty and oppression. And after all the woe is me of last week, here Micah finishes on a high with four exciting twists on the roller coaster, four mini oracles looking forward, upward uh, and onward, forward to beyond Judah's exile and upward to the great God who will bring them home and onward to that wonderful future. In each of these oracles, a different aspect of God's relationship with his people is revealed. It's there to show us what God is like and how we are to respond to him. A different way in which he cares for his people and which we are cared for. So firstly, we see the Lord is a light for the heavy hearted. The Lord is a light for the heavy hearted. Have a look with me again at verses 8 to 10. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. Micah speaks here on behalf of the nation. Judah was going into exile. That's what he'd been saying all along. The temptation was going to be for the nations around to gloat over Judah's downfall. Indeed, the book of Obadiah tells us Edom to the south did just that. In fact, they even joined in with the looting of Jerusalem. But Micah warns them about the foolishness of gloating over the fall of Judah. Judah will not stay down for long. They will not remain in the darkness of exile for a long time. If this was a mid-90s text speak sort of thing, it would be BRB, be right back. 70 years in the scheme of things is not going to be a long time to be away. So they're coming back soon. And even while they're in exile... The Lord will be a light to them. He will not abandon them. He will be a light to them in the darkness of exile. In the meanwhile, though, they will bear the indignation of the Lord. They will humbly accept their punishment. No more excuses. No more trying to pass the book. The people have sinned and they will accept it. They will wait for the Lord, as Micah modelled last week. They will wait until their punishment is over and the Lord once again becomes their advocate rather than their judge. He will plead their cause rather than bringing a case against them as he's been doing so far in Micah. He will bring them back into the light. He will bring them home into their land. They will be restored and vindicated. The Lord has not destroyed them like an enemy. He has disciplined them like a son. The exile has not been a sign that God no longer cares for them. In fact, it's the opposite. 
It's because he cares for them that he sent them into exile. In Proverbs 3, it says this, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. That's what God is doing here by scattering them into the darkness of slavery in Babylon. He's treating them like a son. He's disciplining them. So the enemy mustn't gloat. It mustn't be proud over the fact that Judah has gone into exile. If they were, it would be like that inevitable scene in every Bond movie where the Bond villain thinks he's defeated James Bond and, you know, starts laughing and, and sort of turns away and goes to walk off only to find that Bond reappears out of the water or the sky or shuttlecraft or whatever and that Bond music starts playing, you know, ding, 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 that one. And the enemy that desired to see the hero destroyed will find that in fact it's they who are destroyed. That's what it's talking about in verse 10, where the enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is your God? The ones who ridiculed God's people by shouting to them, where is your God now? will find out exactly where their God is. The tables will have been turned on their enemies. Now, as we look at this, it is talking about the nation of Judah, but it's important to remember that although this was written on behalf of the nation, Micah was part of that nation. There is a personal element to this too, an individual aspect to it. There are times as individuals that we feel like we are sat in darkness, aren't there? When the weight of sin weighs heavy down upon us. When we bear the indignation of the Lord. Now that might be because we've never taken our sin to the cross. We've never come to Jesus for forgiveness. We're trying to bear the load ourselves when Jesus would gladly take it off us. If that's you, why bear the weight of sin? Why bear it yourself when Jesus died that you might be free of it? Go to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. Ask him to take off that weight from your back. But I imagine for most of us, it's when we've fallen into the arms of sin as believers. And we may even be facing the disciplining hand of the Lord. What do we do then? Well, we follow Micah's example. We do what Micah says here. John Piper writes in one of his books, uh, talking about this passage, he counts on the Lord's light in the darkness that God himself has sent. That is what we must learn to do in the darkness. Even the darkness we have brought on ourselves because of our sin. Yes, I am in the gloom of failure. Yes, God has put me here in his displeasure. But no, I am not abandoned. And God is not against me. He is for me. Even in the darkness that he imposes, he will sustain me. He will not let me go. Though he slay me, he will save me. We must learn to preach this to ourselves uh, to, in our fight for joy. That's what John Piper says. There's that personal aspect to this as we fight in the darkness. God, even in the midst of great difficulty, in the midst of great sadness, is our light even in the darkness. Jesus says in John 12 verse uh, 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus calls himself the light of the world. But he's more than that. 
He's our light in the darkness. It's to him and to his sacrifice that we look as we sit in darkness. Knowing that we really, really have sinned, but knowing that he himself really did bear our sins in his body on the tree. And that allows us to rise from darkness with heads held high, vindicated, declared innocent. Not because we haven't sinned, but because he has done our sentence for us and there is no more time to be served. And we need to preach this to ourselves, don't we, as we face the darkness. Yes, we are sinners, but Christ died for sinners. So we rise, we will rise and our enemies will be defeated, it says. But who are our enemies who will be trampled down? Well, we'll come to that later on. But for now, if you're heavy hearted, come to Jesus. Let him lift that burden from you. When the thought of your sin and your guilt comes to you, take it to the cross. He is a light to the heavy hearted. The second thing that we see is that the Lord is a shepherd for the hungry. A shepherd for the hungry. Have a look at verses 11 to 14. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. But the law, sorry, but the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants, for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your flock with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in the forest, in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old. Where do we go to to fill the void in our lives? Where do we go to to get what we need? The image here is of a sheep pen. The walls it talks about here aren't city walls. There's a different word in Hebrew for those uh, walls. This is more like the dry stone walls that you find all around uh, in Yorkshire, in our wonderful countryside. Uh, the dry stone walls that surround the, the fields and keep the sheep in. Micah looks forward today when the sheep pen will be extended, when the nations will see the barrenness of their world and flock to the good shepherd for their sustenance, when they will go to the one place that they can see their hunger actually filled. And the good shepherd will lead them. This has been Micah's vision of hope all along, hasn't it? This shepherd who will come, the shepherd king of chapter five, whose origin is of old, but will be born as a man in Bethlehem, none other than Jesus Christ. And here we see a prayer to Jesus, verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. It's a call for Jesus to look after his sheep. Jesus in the New Testament calls himself the good shepherd, who will care for his sheep, who won't run away like the hired hands. In Micah here it says he will lead them to graze in Bashan and Gilead. They were the most fertile lands in Israel, the place where you really wanted your sheep to be, where there was lots for them to eat. He was set, setting before them a feast, pastorally speaking, and pastorally as in shepherd, you know, shepherdly speaking. He will lead them to green pastures and beside still waters. He will provide for their hunger. 
He will satisfy them with all that they need. Ultimately, we find in the New Testament that Jesus gives us himself. He is the one who satisfies our soul. The good shepherd lays down his life for us. He shepherds his sheep in the best way possible, not taking from them to feed himself as the shepherds were in in Micah's day, but taking of himself to feed them. So if we're hungry, Jesus is the only one who can satisfy. If there's a void in us, Jesus is the only one who can fill it. The bread of life, the great shepherd of the sheep. He welcomes people from all peoples to come to the safety of his pasture, away from the desolate earth made desolate by sin. To come feast on his abundance provided by his laying down his life for the sheep. Today is a day for building of walls as more come in and enjoy the feast of the shepherd king. He's a shepherd for the hungry, so go to him for all that you need. But thirdly, the Lord is also the rescuer, a rescuer of the harassed, a rescuer of the harassed. Have a look at verse 15. As in the days when you came out from the land of Egypt, I will show them marvellous things. God here casts their mind back to the Exodus. Remember when he brought all their people out of Egypt, he's saying, remember that time. Remember the awesome things that I did. Rivers of blood, hailstones like footballs, darkness at noontime, the mighty Red Sea split in half. All that the nations might know that the Lord is God. That's the refrain through Exodus, isn't it? Well, he's going to do it again. That's what he's saying. It's Exodus round two. A return to the land. A mighty rescue for his people and a judging of the nations. Have a look at 16 and 17. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God and they shall be in fear of you. The nations who have oppressed them will be judged. And their judgment echoes the devil's judgment in Genesis 3. Laid low in the dust, waiting to be crushed. No stronghold can withstand it. No army will match it. They will be terrified. In fear of God and in fear of his people. As the nations feared the Israelites when they left Egypt, if you think about it. So if you go back to Exodus 15, verses 14 and 16 in the Song of Moses, this is what it says. The peoples have heard, that's it, they've heard of the Exodus. They heard and they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now all are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are as still as a stone. Those who had caused them to live in fear, like in the the nations around them in those days, now find themselves what it's like to live in fear. Those who had oppressed and enslaved them will be judged like the Egyptians. 
who had been judged all those hundreds of years before. The Lord redeems his people and he dooms their enslavers. And in the New Testament, we have a redeemer too, don't we? With those Exodus overtones. Whenever the New Testament talks about redemption, it's borrowing language from the Exodus. Whenever it talks about us being freed, it's picking up on the same image. The great rescue that Jesus brings is modelled after the Exodus. Or more really, the Exodus was modelled after it. As Jesus hung on the cross in supernatural darkness, as he died as the sacrificial lamb, as he begins a new covenant in his blood. And it's a rescue that brings about judgment on his enemies. Colossians 2 verse 15 says this, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus beat his enemies by dying on the cross. But what enemies are we talking about? Well, from that verse, it's clearly talking about the devil and the supernatural forces of evil. That's one of the things that he overcame on the cross. But there is also a human uh, opposition faced to this too, if you like. The Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians 1, 27 and 28. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you or am, am absent... I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striding side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. As Paul writes to the Philippians, the Philippians were keeping going in the face of persecution from others. Their perseverance was a sign to them that they truly were saved, redeemed, rescued. But it was also a sign to the people persecuting them that they would be destroyed. Their unrepentant, unrelenting persecution of believers was a sign. A sign that they were on the wrong side and that they were facing destruction, just as Pharaoh's armies did. It's a sign to them that they need to change sides. Because it doesn't mean that everybody who's ever been mean or, or harassed a Christian ends up in hell. The case in point would be Paul, the apostle, who's writing these very words. He was a persecutor of Christians, but his life was turned around. But as Abraham Lincoln once said, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Actually, if they turn to Jesus, he will forgive them. But God will get his way. Their enemies will be destroyed. But there's an even bigger enemy that God has in mind when he talks about vanquishing his enemies. And that brings us to our last point. The Lord is a victor over our hardest enemy. The Lord is a victor over our hardest enemy. Have a look at verses 18 to 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This last section is so marvellous, it was tempting to have a whole week on it. 
but this last section is supposed to be read with the rest of it. These last two verses continue to riff on the song of Moses in Exodus 15. So Exodus 15:11, who is a god like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Or Exodus 15:3 to 4, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. That's the song of Moses, except here in Micah, it's not Pharaoh and his army that is thrown into the sea, but our sins and transgressions. The great victory the Lord, the man of war, the warrior has won, is over sin. Sin is our greatest enemy. And God here treads it underfoot and casts it into the sea. He crushes it like one of those drinks cans and then throws it in the deepest part of the ocean, never to return. But please don't throw your drinks cans in the ocean, it's not good for the environment. But that's the picture here. It's a picture of utter humiliation, utter defeat. There is no way our sin is coming back. He has crushed it like the serpent's head in Genesis 3 which was to be crushed by Eve's offspring. God has dealt with this completely. He is the warrior God, the man of war for his people to destroy their hardest enemy, sin. Now sin might not seem like a hard enemy compared to Pharaoh and his army, not compared to the devil and his minions. But all our other enemies are on the outside. Sin is the enemy within. All other enemies come and go. They change their focus, their tactics. But sin is always there in our hearts. With other enemies, there's someone else to blame. But with sin, it's just us. There's no other enemy as hard as sin. And those who have struggled in the battle know, don't we? That's the case. If you want evidence of just such a hard, how hard an enemy sin is... Just try and stop sinning. Try and fight it. And you'll soon find out that sin does not just roll over. You'll soon find out that even when sin looks defeated, it can spring back to life and attack. But Micah tells us that God has defeated sin utterly. Sin is a defeated foe. He will crush it underfoot. He will throw our sin into the depths of the sea. There's no coming back. How? How will God accomplish this tremendous, complete victory over our hardest foe? Well, again, we only truly understand this when we come to Jesus. Hebrews 9, 26. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Or 1 John 3, 5. He appeared in order to take away sin. In Colossians and Romans, the picture is that he nailed our sin to the cross and took it away. In Acts, the picture is that our sin has been washed away, blotted out. Jesus has done it, put away our sin, nailed it to the cross, taken it away, blotted it out, washed it away, or as Micah says, crushed it and thrown it into the deepest ocean. The joy, oh the joy of this glorious thought, my sin, not the part but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. 
What other God does this? What other God pardons sin, passes over transgression, deals with his people's problem? Most of the gods of the nations are just interested in visiting judgment on the people or seeing what they can get out of them, throwing lightning bolts when they're upset, sending plagues and famines. Who would dream up a God who offers forgiveness like this for his people? After all, sin is most definitely our problem, isn't it? We're the ones that caused it, but it's God getting involved in our mess, the mess that we've made. We've made our bed, but it's God who chooses to lie in it, or more to die for it. Why does he do it? Well, it says it's because he delights in steadfast love. That word hesed that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, kindness, mercy, faithful love, love that doesn't break, hesed. God delights in it. He doesn't just do it. He doesn't just like it. He delights in it. He treats his people like this because he delights in steadfast love. He loves to show mercy, compassion and steadfast love. Which means he doesn't do it reluctantly. God is more eager to forgive your sin than you are to confess it to him. Who would dare dream of a God like this? If the Bible didn't tell us this was so, we wouldn't dare dream of this, would we? He does this because he delights in steadfast love. And in verse 20 he does it because he's promised to. He promised himself to Abraham's people. He promised himself to Jacob. He will not abandon his people. He will show faithfulness and steadfast love. He's promised to. And God does not break his promises ever. So that means that we are secure. Not because we are good or we are kind. But because God delights to show steadfast love. And he's promised himself to his people. So whilst Micah might be a roller coaster, we are thoroughly strapped in. There is no way that he's going to let us fly off. There is no way that he's going to let our sin overwhelm us. He's a light to us when we're heavy hearted. A shepherd with green pastures for us when we are hungry. A rescuer for us when we are harassed and weary. A warrior for us of our enemies that we could never defeat ourselves. So as we finish Micah, let's give thanks to God for his loving care. Give thanks to him for the hope that he offers and give thanks to him for the God that he is. And let's pray that God would change us into men and women of justice who do justice, love kindness and walk humbly with our great shepherd king. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that there is no other God like you. We thank you that we could never dream to make up a God who is like you, who pardons our sins, who throws them into the sea, who crushes them under his feet. Father, thank you that you are a God who cares for your people. And Father, we pray that we'd remember that this week as we face darkness, as we face hunger, as we face problems. 
We pray that we would come to you, our light in the darkness, our great shepherd of the sheep, and turn to you alone for all that we need. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.